Well, in order to talk with him, you had to smoke a cigar with him. That was a rule. And now, was, were you a cigar smoker at that I point? I was not a cigar smoker at all. <laughs> so what was your first cigar experience it was a, in uh, front of Saddam Hussein like? He lit it for me. He lit it for you? Mm-hmm. And what happened next? He cut it and he lit it for me. He did the whole deal. So yeah, he took the cigar out and he's like, this is a Cohiba, Churchill. He goes, these are the best. He goes, you're going to smoke these and only these. And I'm like, okay. That's how we interacted with each other. That's how you got into his head. This is Paperless an audio magazine from Vespucci. My name is Michael Weiss, and I'm an investigative journalist of international affairs. Over the past 10 years, I've reported on Russian spies, Islamic terrorism, and information warfare for outlets such as The Daily Beast, The Atlantic, and CNN. I found that what often gets cut from a story, especially about the military, is almost always as interesting as what gets printed. What makes the real story, what defines what happens in history, is the people you've never heard of, until now. Take Army Captain Kelly Hillier. He was a skateboarding Kansas City kid who was sent to Iraq in 2005. He had no idea he'd be tasked with the most sensitive protective mission of the war, guarding Saddam Hussein. He pulled me aside, the XO of the 43rd, and was like, so, uh, you ready for this? And I'm like, so you you know you know who you're getting ready to go meet. And I was like, uh, yeah, I have a, kind of an idea, sir. And he's like, so are you ready? And I was like, I, I guess I I'm gonna have to be, you know. And I was I was sick to my stomach. I mean, I wanted to throw up all over him because who knows? I mean, what what's it gonna be like when I go in? I mean, is he gonna be hostile? Is he gonna? Be, I mean, I, this is. And you know what? I What's weird is I never even thought about that article. The GQ Not, article. Yeah, I never thought about the... At that moment, I hadn't thought about it. You know, how ironic it was. Earlier that year, Kelly was just 26 years old, flipping burgers at Applebee's and thinking the war was going to be over before he'd have a chance to go and fight it. He'd picked up a copy of GQ and read a profile about a soldier who'd been tasked with guarding Saddam Hussein. Kelly sat there wanting more than anything to be that soldier wishing he could do something, something important that would make a difference. Kelly's father had made a difference. He'd even fought against Saddam in the first Gulf War. But by November, Kelly's wait was finally over, and he was on his way to Baghdad. We were met by uh, the commander of Camp Cropper, and Camp Cropper was where the deck of cards were kept. Deck of cards being the top-ranking officials Correct. from Saddam's regime. Correct. That's where they were all kept. So you kind of had an inkling, given that the deck of cards were, were being held here, that you were probably going to be assigned to a high-value detainee, right? Right. So I go to bed, and they say, yeah, get your guys down, and uh, you know, you have a big day tomorrow. Tomorrow you're going to meet your mission. You know, and I was, I was sick to my stomach. You figured out that you were going to be meeting Saddam Hussein? Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was pretty much downing on me. You're now being told, or you have an inkling, that you're going to be tasked with being the prison warden of arguably the worst bad guy of the tw- late 20th century, post-war 20th century. What are you thinking? Like, am I going to meet a monster? Am I going to meet a man? Like, what? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I'm all of, you know, all of the above, I guess. The monster, mostly. When I was walking in, there was a series of doors that you had to go through just to get to him. And every door, there's a little bit more anticipation. There's a little bit more stress because I don't know who I'm going to meet, because what I do know is this is who my father went to war against, and now I'm getting ready to meet him, and he's kind of the Hitler of my generation. Um, And I knew of all the atrocities that he had committed. I'm walking in, and they've opened up the final door, and... They said, okay, so he's he's in his cell right now. He just woke up from a nap. So I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, so is he going to be cranky? Or like... <laughs> Not if he's had a nap, he Right. <laughs> but I walked into the cell block, and there's two guards. There was always two guards with him at all point, all times. Um, it wasn't very wide, I would say. Maybe nine feet wide. 
by 15 feet mm-hmm. concrete slab where his bed was and it had a it had a mattress on it um and he had all of his he had a toilet in the back and he had all of his personal belongings in there how did he keep his cell decorated what was did he have anything on the walls what what did, what was his paraphernalia uh he had his quran he had a prayer rug he had the bible which well, that was a huge surprise for me i was Surprised that that was there. We walked in and we opened up the cell block door and he was uh, sitting in his chair and he was writing on a large yellow legal pad. What was he writing? I was probably poetry. That's what he usually wrote. Poetry. Lots of poetry. Lots of poetry. The lieutenant who I was replacing called him Vic and said, hey, Vic. I got we got something for you to meet. But I called him sir. Vic stands for what? Okay, so that's up for debate. So it's either Vic for victory or it's very important criminal. You know, choose your own adventure, whatever one you want. <laughs> I rarely called him Vic. I always called him sir. To me that was more appropriate. Because as far as I was concerned, you know, he was still president of a country. You never called him Mr. President, though. No. Oh no. No, I'm not going that. I'm not going that far. I'm just gonna sh- show show some respect. Does he get up from his chair? Is he? He did. F- he got up from his chair. Shake your hand. He what? did. He got up from his chair. Stood up when I walked in, and he shook my hand. And he spoke a little bit of English, right? He spoke a lot of English. A lot of English. Yeah, he spoke well. I mean, either his English got better over our relationship or my broken English got better. You know what I mean? Like I understood him more. Yeah. Um, but he just kind of shook his head and I said, if you need anything, sir, you just ask me and I'll make sure I get that for you. And that was it. So how are you feeling at this point about your mission? It's all fine and good. Yes, I just met Saddam and I felt like I was going to throw up. Um, And I was just completely kind of starstruck in a way. I mean, it's just, I I don't, starstruck is probably not a good word. Starstruck, he's not a star, but. You're standing in front of a historical figure. He was, yes, exactly. However awful he was. You know, and so I I was a little blown away, a little speechless, and it was surreal. I mean, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think America has ever fought a war where it has toppled a government and then captured alive the former head of that government. So you were in a unique position in American history. After I got done meeting him, you know, I sat down with the colonel and he told me, so we're going to need you to befriend him. Befriend him? Yeah, he's going to need to trust you. This is a trust relationship. Because for the next year, we're getting ready to start court. And not only are you going to be taking care of him day to day, but when we move him, you're going to be protecting him. So he's going to be sitting next to you in that Blackhawk when you're flying over Baghdad. You know, and if that Blackhawk goes down, you know, your job is to protect him. So you had to risk your own life to keep him alive. It was, you know, in the military, we call that implied tasks. So implied tasks are things that don't have to be said. They don't have to be said. We just know that that's something that has to get from, to be done to get from point A to point B. The process was important. The Iraqi people needed to see him go through court. So that's why uh, the colonel told me that. He was, you know, you're going to, you're going to be protecting him and you're going to be living with this man day in and day out and you're going to get tired of him and it's going to be exhausting but this is what you're going to do I mean I prayed I mean I did I went back to my my, my room my cell whatever <laughs> and you know I, I, I was like God tell me what to do on this situation because I don't know what I'm doing here I'm way over my head What's going through your mind in terms of, right, how am I going to befriend Saddam Hussein? <laughs> um, 
yeah, that was that was hard to figure out. It took a lot of reflection and maybe brainstorming, I guess, to figure out, well, okay, so what is it that I'm going to have to do to get him to trust me? You know, at first, the relationship started off as tests, little tests to see what I was going to do, feeling me out a little bit. Um, so, How did he test you? What would he try to do? Like washing his clothes, some of his clothes. The other guards would make him wash his own stuff in the shower. And he handed them to me. You know, I'm not going to make my soldiers do it. So I just did it. I just washed him. I didn't wash him by hand. We had a washing dryer. I don't care. I threw his shit in there with mine. I brought it back to him folded, clean and folded. What'd he say? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And he just set it down on his bed, you know? And that was the first test. And honestly, he never made me do it again. Never happened again. And it seemed like with the guys before us, there was maybe a little tension fighting each other. Not in like just little stuff, you know, things, you know, you didn't let me stay out at recreation very long. I didn't necessarily like the food that you brought me. You know, it was a tension, you know. And so I read through all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, so how can I make this easier? Because these are only detainee. Why do we need to make this hard? It's not like I have a camp of 3,000. I have a detainee. And so we started allowing him to choose his own food. And uh, I would allow him to stay at rec as long as he wanted. I didn't care. Why do I care? What would he do outside? He'd sit at a little picnic table and he'd smoke his cigars. He was getting, he's had cigars. He did have cigars, absolutely. How did he get the cigars? We had a, a budget to, to buy cigars for him. Things. I mean, just if it made him a more agreeable detainee, so be it. It sounds pretty tedious, you know. He's just one 69, 67-year-old man, 42 people tasked with guarding him, keeping him comfortable. Did he ever just want to talk and have a conversation? Did he ever call you in just to shoot the breeze? Eventually he did. Eventually he did. He would be out smoking cigars, and I would go out and just check on him. And I would say, hey, you doing okay? You know? And I was very casual about it. In fact, you know, almost comical, just to kind of loosen things up so there wasn't, there wasn't any tension between us. And so when I walked in, you know, I'd be like, hey! And eventually it got to the point where he would answer back that way. Hey, just like that. Like a Budweiser commercial. Yes, What's up? absolutely. Absolutely. He started answering. He started to act kind of like me when we interacted with each other. And so I would walk in and I'm like, hey, you doing okay? Can I get you anything? Are you good? I am good. I'm good. And then eventually, would, do you, would you like to sit and talk? That's how you figured out whether or not he was in a good mood or a bad mood or whether he was going to be agreeable when we went to court, or, you know what I mean? Like, you had to do something to create some kind of a bond. You know, he just had uh, particular tastes and likes and dislikes that you you pick up on, you know, when you're in, in that situation. So you learn how he likes his tea. You know how he likes his chair to be positioned. You know when he likes to be woken up. You learn his routine really quick and his, all the little subtle nuances that just make a human a human. He would read me poetry. His poetry? Yeah. yeah. Poetry. He was always writing poetry. I remember him writing a poem about my sister. He wrote a poem about your sister? And I told him that his that her name was Honey. And so he wrote a poem um, about Honey, you know, and uh, something about... You know, the flower smells like honey and, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was very flowery. And my interpreter, let me tell you, don't, don't hold this against me that I don't remember. My interpreter hated doing any kind of translation of anything he wrote and he would complain and bitch about it all the time. And you're like, LT, this is bullshit. This guy doesn't talk like anybody. 
He was always this. He hated it. So he thought Saddam's poetry was shit, basically. He didn't say it was shit. He just didn't like writing and reading it because it was so flowery. And he's like, nobody talks like this. Nobody. So I guess he just wasn't a fan of poetry. And, you know, we would have magazines all over the place. People would send us magazines. Sometimes I would tell them jokes out of those magazines. And there was one magazine that had Rodney Dangerfield jokes in it. And he liked those a lot. I get no respect? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the jokes? I was born and the doctor came into the waiting room and said to my father, I'm sorry, we did everything we could, but he still pulled through. (laughs) You know, I mean, he, he just ate those up. I don't know what it was about Rodney Dangerfield jokes, but he just thought they were the funniest thing. He says, I could tell my parents hated me. My bath toys were a toaster and a radio. <laughs> I mean, just... <laughs> I could kind of understand why Saddam Hussein would be drawn to that kind of humor. Yeah, yeah. He, he thought it was... He just thought it was hilarious. And... You know, sometimes you're just kind of desperate to find something in common or something too interesting to talk about, especially when you're out there day in and day out all the time. And not a lot is going on in my life or his life. You know, it's not like he can tell me about his day. Well, what'd you do? Well, okay. It's the same as it is every day. It's Groundhog Day. Um, So we started talking about the moon landing. And there was an, an article in there about you know, conspiracy theories. And one of those conspiracy theories in one of these magazines was the moon landing. And basically it was why the naysayers believe that we never went to the moon. And I read it out, you know, why some people believe that the moon landing never happened. And he looked at me like I was nuts like, that was the first time he had ever heard that before. And I'm like, listen, man, I'm telling you. It says right here, these are the reasons why people think that we didn't go to the moon. And this is, I mean, I'm literally talking to him just like this. I mean, this is how our conversations would go. You know, listen, man, I'm telling you. And it was just kind of like two guys talking. So I was, you know, trying to explain to him, like, this is why. You know, you got the, the what is it, the Van Allen belts. And, you know, we got 1960s technology, you know, there's just, it doesn't, you know, the flag waving on the moon, you know, there was no crater, just all these things that they pointed out. And of course I believe that, but I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate and I'm trying to, to tell him why, to see if it might sway him in some way, shape or form. And he looked at me like I was nuts, like just batshit crazy. It's like, I, I watched it. Of course we landed on the moon. Of course we did. You would think that he'd be all on board with that or or anything that would might look make the US look bad. He thought that was a crazy, crazy idea. Of course we went to the moon. Of course. <laughs> he saw it. You know, he was very big on um me calling my mother, you know, one time, you know, I, I came in and I was I was tired. And I just sat there, you know, at the table. And he goes, you know, have you called your mom? Because we had talked about my mother and family and stuff. And I'm like, no, I haven't called my mother. And he goes, you need to go call your mother. Give her her a call. Mothers need to hear from their sons. So he was real big on that. He was close to his mother, apparently. Yeah, I remember that. He ordered me to go call my mom. And did you? Yeah, I just went ahead and did it just for... Without telling her that Saddam told you you needed yeah. to call yeah. more and yeah. check in. Yeah. You know, I couldn't say much about the mission, so everything that I had to tell my family was kind of a lie. Or just... What did you tell them? Um, ah, it's just kind of a boring, boring day. You know, nothing significant happening. You know, made my mother feel better. I think she would have felt differently if she would have known I just flew in a Black Hawk across Baghdad at 3 in the morning with Saddam Hussein next to me, holding onto my cargo pocket. Might not go over too well with her. My grandmother used to be glued to the television set when this was going on. She was every bit as much invested in me being over there as my mother was. Um, And she would watch the news. 
And I would talk to her on the phone, and she'd be like, have you seen that old son of a bitch Saddam on, on, on TV? And I'm like, no, Grandma. I was like, what's, what'd he do? And, <laughs> and she proceeded to just tell me over the phone. Little did they know that he was 50 feet away. So, I mean, you guarded him a year, a little under a year. Mm-hmm. At no point in that time did he talk about the war and what America was doing. Okay, and... so he, he did, um, but we didn't get into politics a lot. Um, that was just kind of a no-no. But once in a while, he would bring something up about his sons, and of course, you know, they were killed. Right. And he never held me accountable for any of that. Meaning like, taking he, out on you what he felt toward no, America? No, no. He didn't hold me accountable for that. He he understood that, you know, you were soldiers, and he considered himself a soldier even though he was actually never in the service. And, uh, you know, he used, he used soldiers to do what soldiers do. And, you know, it's your job. It's it's what it's our it's our job. It's our mission. So it it's not your fault. I told Saddam that my father was in Desert Storm. You know, and you know that's that's when we got into the soldier conversation. So, and he understood that he didn't he didn't hold that against me either. That you know, my father fought against you and your army you know and it's just it's just the way he soldiers do what soldiers do you know you follow orders so here's what what's interesting to me the contrast privately he sounds like model prisoner polite courteous sharing his stogies with you telling you call your mom publicly when he got to trial. He denounced the court. He denounced the occupation. He refused to recognize the legitimacy of the court because he considered himself still president. Mm -hmm. So again, try to help me understand. I mean, was that just a complete public persona, an act? Or was that really how he felt? I mean, he never spoke to you about what was going on. He never said he did. Um, the Americans he, have made a mistake. Or um, well, he, okay. So whenever he, I tried to to veer away from that stuff as much as possible. Uh, I can't get into politics with him, you know. That's not my charge in life. Right. So you know, he would rant, and I would just listen. And of course, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to chime in on that. You know, that's 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 just that's like stepping on a landmine. You know, I'm not going to do that. So, but I would listen to him rant. He was like, "I'm Iraqi. I've lived here my whole life. You know, I know the Iraqi people. You don't know the Iraqi people." You meaning you or the Americans? The Americans, not me. You know, I was a second lieutenant. I had my rank as an advantage. I wasn't responsible for anything, you know, other than him and his day-to-day -day care and then getting him back and forth to court. I, I wasn't responsible for any of the bad things that happened to him. He knew that that was echelons above my, my reality. A lot of our conversations were, you know, we're going to court, you know, so are you going to have your bags all packed tomorrow for court? Oh, yes. I'll make sure it's, it's done. In order to pass the time, Kelly would find ways to keep Saddam entertained. One of those was to watch movies. Saddam loved Hollywood movies. He wanted to watch The Passion of the Christ. Wanted to watch it. Don't know why. Well, I know why. I mean, it was a big movie. It just came out maybe a year prior to. And I, I'm sure his lawyers told him about it. Um... We are not in that business, you know. Um, well, that's not part of our training. If they're Muslim, they're supposed to stay that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, but I we're mean, not. I mean, a I'm Muslim just, can watch a film about Christ, right? And I understand and Christ that. Christ is I considered I, a and I, Exactly, I understand that. But we don't want the the there's a perception that you don't want it's proselytization right yeah 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 and i'm personally i was wanting it we were wanting it to just go away ah uh, maybe i'll just let it go away so he really wanted to see that movie. yeah he did yeah he did and maybe i don't know it was like a test i don't know we're like oh my god okay okay all right so this isn't gonna go away and you know his lawyers are asking and they keep mentioning it and so it's it's we can't just pretend it didn't come out um so 
But we drafted up a document and made him sign it saying, listen, you are asking for this movie. We are not telling you to watch it. We don't care if you, I mean, we have no opinion one way or the other. But you are going to sign this saying that we're not the ones telling you to do it. And he signed. Oh, yeah. He did and his lawyers. The lawyers all signed it. And we, we, we watched it. Okay, so what we did was we wanted to make sure that it was handled correctly. Um, because this movie is not like just watching Troy or something. So at this point in his life, what, what's he going through? What's he thinking about? Is he wanting to explore other things, other forms of spirituality? Not necessarily to convert or anything like that, but maybe just... What does maybe he has maybe there's some teachings that, or I mean, maybe he identifies with a, an unpopular figure who's about to be put to death in the Middle East. You know what? That's 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 he you know, that's an interesting take. And I've never I've never thought about that. But that that's you know, that could have been very well. Very well. The, the case. Well, what, what did he think of Mel Gibson's movie? That's what I'm dying to. Find out. Um, he seemed to like the movie but uh, he didn't like the torture scenes <laughs> Saddam Hussein didn't which like was the weird because scene. yeah because I mean he would look away a little bit sometimes and I'd ask him you know do you want to turn it off oh no no I'm okay I'm okay and like you and but in the, in the back of my mind like you of all people come on man I mean I'm his, like you have probably overseen worse things than this the surreal moments didn't stop there I just remember being in that Black Hawk and it just being pitch black and you just feel the power of that, that, that helicopter and flying over Baghdad. I'm like, if only my parents could, my friends, anybody could see me now, you know, this is surreal. I'm flying in a Black Hawk next, you know, sitting next to Saddam. At first, it was hard for him to get up into the Black Hawk. And so I just let him kind of step up on my knee. I mean, there was nothing we could do. I mean, how are we? I mean, how are you going to get him up there? Right. You know. And then my soldiers would kind of hold each arm, and he would step up in there. And I remember the seals at the time were kind of observing our movement, and they thought we were moving him great. They think we did a great job, but they had they just they had a beef with that. With what? Putting him on your knee? Yeah. So they got disrespectful to the service or yeah yeah and i could see that i could totally see that um we were just doing we weren't thinking about it we just were thinking about getting this old guy onto the blackhawk right you know i wasn't thinking like that i didn't have time to think like that and he used to hold on to my pant leg because he hated to fly oh, so yeah. Uh, yeah he would hold on to my cargo pocket because he just he hated it sometimes we would be there for a couple weeks at a time and were you still guarding him? You were still responsible for oh, him yeah. when he was there? I never left his side. Ever. So you, you slept at the courthouse? I did. You know, we had him dressed for court. He would put on a suit and, you know, all that stuff. I mean, he always wore a suit mm -hmm. and a white shirt. And I would take that suit to the, the cleaners and I'd have it pressed before court. It was a very big deal before court to make sure all of his clothes that he was going to be wearing for court was good to go. And we had his hair cut, we got his teeth cleaned for him, yeah, um, and to make sure he was presentable. It was like he was changing as we went up into the elevator. His his mannerisms and his postures started to change, like he was getting pumped to go into the court. And so we're joking, making jokes, talking, you know. He's as we're going up into the elevator, but then when he was handed off and he entered the courtroom. That's Darth Vader right there. Completely different person. That was that was the Saddam the world knew. Not the Saddam that I just rode up in the elevator with. And this was uh, just one slate of charges against him, not even the the real gravamon of his atrocities. We didn't it didn't cover the Onfall campaign or Halabja and the gassing of the Kurds, genocide. Um did he ever say, Oh, I didn't do any of this? This is all made no. up. No, in he court, in fact, it. he got up and said he did all of it. Mm. I mean, he, he got up and said, I'm president of the country. I'm responsible for all of this. You did know? he tell you that privately? No. Did he ever defend himself in his reign? No. 
not to me. He didn't ever. He did all of that was in court. Um, about the extent I got into court with him was, I mean, he hated the judge. I mean, he hated him so bad. And so, you know, the U.S. Marshals who ran the court, they would take bets on whether or not he would get thrown out. It got to the point where they would take times, like, you know, like, who's got who's got 15 minutes, who's got 10? And I wasn't allowed to play because I had undue influence, so I was not allowed <laughs> to be part of those games, those fun and games. Because, I mean, it was like clockwork. Like, you knew he was going to get thrown out, you know? And one time, he was like, he called me over, and he's like, LT, I'm tired. LT lieutenant. Yeah, he calls yeah, you call me LT sometimes. He goes, LT, I'm I'm tired. I, I need a, I need a nap. And I'm like, well, you know you're gonna get thrown out anyway, so just, <laughs> you know, we know what's gonna happen, so you're just gonna be down here anyway. And I was like, I was just kidding. And so we're down there, and all of a sudden he gets thrown out of court, like within five minutes, and he's already downstairs, and they're like, hey. LT man, Vic's downstairs. I'm like, what do you mean he's downstairs? We just took him upstairs. And he goes, nah, man, he's already ready to... For his know. nap? Yeah, he's ready for his nap. Well, no, but he was supposed to be taking a nap, but he, he wanted to go out and smoke cigars and drink tea. At any point, he could have got on TV and said that the Americans are abusing me. And that never happened. He never once said anything about the way we were treating him, ever. And I just felt that going over and above was the right thing to do because I thought that was my duty. That's what the president would have wanted. That's what my leadership would have wanted of me. That's what they expected of me. And he's a human being. So I can't forgive him. I, I, I'm not, I don't have that authority to, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to say that I have a right to forgive this human being for any of the atrocities that he committed. He didn't kill any of my family, but soldiers are dying outside these walls every single day because of him. I mean, clearly, like he's this larger than life evil figure in history, but, you know, I mean, I, 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 I sat this far away from him almost every single evening. And if anything, it made his evil more real because this is a person I can touch. You know, he's not this evil Darth Vader type character who's raining havoc throughout the Middle East, you know, and his people. This is a person that I could reach out and touch just like you which made his victims more real for me. Seeing them on trial, seeing them testify, talking about family members disappearing, mass graves being uncovered. I mean, if I can reach out and touch him, then all of these people were just as real. It's not a myth, it it was all real. When you realize he's just as human as you or I, then that makes his atrocities that much more real Mm -hmm. and profound. I don't know if he felt guilt for anything that he had done. Not at all. And it was, like I said, it was hard to watch all of that on, you know, the witnesses. You know, that made it really hard in fact, I remember the first time I saw that, I didn't I didn't go down to the cell block that night. You know, I had to I had to take some time to You were more affected by seeing his victims than he was. He would return from court and would he undergo the reverse transformation from Darth Vader back into Vic? Yeah. And yeah. not a word about not a these word. women with chemical scarring and not a word. Not a word. We're watching the witnesses come in and talk about their families disappearing. 
you know, and they never, loved ones that they never saw again. And uh, their faces were all blistered up. From the chemical weapons? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was an immense amount of guilt for me to have to go down there and be um, this guy's friend. It was hard because in the back of my mind, all of this is going on. I mean, I'm seeing this. So at no point did I ever not know what he was capable of and what he did. And at no point did I ever doubt which side I was on. He wasn't swaying me in any way. There wasn't, well, you guys just don't know him, you know. You just don't know him like I know him, which was true. But the same person can have different facets to his personality. He was the person that we all thought he was. Absolutely, 100%. You know, but he also had kind of a fatherly side to him. And you could tell that he was capable of caring about somebody. Or either that or he was just acting like he could. So the guard was always up for me. Which is why I had to extract myself from the situation sometimes and that would cause like a rift a little bit I mean he noticed that I wasn't there wasn't coming around you know to, to talk and so eventually I'd have to go back in I'd have to but there were times I just needed a break because it was just it was too much it was too hard too hard I felt so much guilt you know sometimes I'd sit there with with him you know I'm smoking cigars you know a cigar, not multiple cigars. And we're talking, and, you know, my soldiers would always be in the cell with us. Well, not the cell. When we smoked cigars, it was always in the recreation area. And he would be sitting over in the corner. The soldiers would. I always have two. And they'd be, you know, playing soda coup or reading a magazine or a newspaper or whatever. Um, and I always felt, I'd look over at them and I'd feel kind of guilty. I don't think they completely... Some of them understood what I had to do, what I was told to do, and some of them didn't, you know? And I never really came out and said it directly to them. This is what I'm told to do. You know, this is why. You know, this is... Uh, you know, I, I think I left that up to my platoon sergeant, you know? To say, hey, listen, this is LT's doing what he's supposed to do. It's his, it's his job. And you know, there was a point where even the leadership was like, man, I, I think, I think he's getting to him. You know, I mean, I would have to, I would have to step away from him and regroup. He wanted to talk all the time. He wanted my attention. Like whatever he needed, I had to provide for him. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty, wow, I mean, just, I can't even, right now it doesn't even feel like it, it really happened, honestly, it was so long ago. And you had him for how long? A year, one year. Did he ever talk to you about death and mortality, specifically his own? Did he know that he was approaching the end, or did he just treat it as... He wasn't scared of dying, he told me that, he wasn't scared to die. But I don't think he thought he was going to. Honestly, I just don't think he thought it was coming. I don't know what he, he thought, but, you know, in my mind, I just, the way the court was rolling along, I just figured that it was going to happen. I really did. I mean, you're trolling the judge every single day, and that's not, that's not a good look. So in a way, then, I mean, your job is to keep him alive so that justice can be done. But in the back of your mind, it sounds like you're keeping him alive so that he can die the way that his country needed and wanted him to die. It's almost like prolonging the inevitable, isn't it? I think most of us just believe that's what he deserved. I mean, is, is I mean that's. It, I mean, I hate to say that it's it's good for anybody to die, but at the same time, you know, that's their justice. That's, you know, that's their law. You know, and, and, you know, they had to execute, 
you know, when he was convicted. And at what point did you part ways? Uh, how long before his execution? He hadn't been sentenced yet, but he had been convicted. And so I told him, I was like, so um, I got to go. And he goes, oh, well, I'll see you when you get back. And I was like, no, I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be back. I'm going home. And, and he goes, oh, you're going, you know, you, you're going to your mother. He's like, yeah, I, I got to go back to my mother. You know, I have to go back home. He goes, well, you know, and he, he got choked up and he turned to the side. Is he crying? Yeah, and he just uh, turned to me and he said, you know, you, you know, your mother needs her son. So I, I understand you need to go. Because we didn't tell him that we, we were asked to extend. And I chose not to. I chose to take me and my guys home, um, which was, the, I mean, that's needed to happen. Because I already knew what was coming. And I didn't want to be there for that. How did you feel in that moment when he's crying and torn up about the fact that you're leaving? I mean, I was upset too. I mean, I was... I, I felt that I was, you know, I, I had spent this year protecting him and watching out for him, looking out for his best interests, and uh, I kind of felt like a failure. Why? Because I wasn't, I was asked to stay, and I didn't stick it out to the end. I, I just was ready to go. My gut feeling said that, you know, he's, he's going to be executed. You know, what I guess I was fearful of is they're going to give me a date, and I'm going to know that date. And am I going to have to tell him when that date is? Or am I supposed to keep it a secret? I don't know what's worse, telling him that Friday is the day or knowing Friday is the day and not telling him. You know, not telling him that this is going to be your last meal and this is going to be the last time you have a cigar. This is the last time you pick up the Quran. You know, this is it. And he's you know, going to look to probably look to me. I don't, not to help him. I can't, I mean, I couldn't help him. I'd be powerless in that situation. Because ultimately, you know, um, you know my loyalties are to my country. You know, my loyalties are not to him. Did you uh, exchange any gifts or parting um, tokens? He gave me some prayer beads, and he had given me, you know, those cigar tip. You put them at the end of a cigar, and you smoke through the filter. I think it might be even a filter. And he handed those to me. And so I would carry around um, St. Christopher medal. Um, that my grandfather wore in World War II. And on that necklace, on the chain, is a Michael the Archangel um, that my mother had given me. So I took that off, not the St. Christopher medal, but Michael, because Michael is in both religions. And I, I gave that to him. I guess I was looking to provide some type of comfort in that moment being that he was pretty upset that that I was leaving and I didn't want to cause any more problems because I was leaving and so as I, I got up well, he gave me a hug and he gave me a kiss on mm -hmm. both cheeks and uh, when I walked out of the cell and that was it and how long was that before he was executed. About a month. I went home and I was sitting on the couch with my girlfriend and it we were watching TV and it came up on on the on the television that he was being escorted to the gallows. Like breaking news. And uh yeah, that was hard. <laughs> it was hard to watch that. You but you did watch it. Um I've never watched the execution. I've never watched the execution. It's too, it's too hard, you know? 
Um, but, I mean, he deserved it. So there's the um, conflict, you know, how many deaths did he cause? How many people did, lives did he destroy? You know, how many soldiers died? So. When you were sitting there with your girlfriend as this news was breaking, did she know? No. I never told her. I never told her. She just saw there was a clear emotional reaction, but I never told her anything. She never knew. She wasn't. I didn't like her anyway. <laughs> I didn't need to. She didn't need to know. I couldn't say anything. I was, I completely, I just got back to, so my, I just kind of disconnected from my family for a while and just kind of dealt with it on my own, you know? Because I spent, you know, I spent a year with him, so sure. protecting him and, you know, keeping him safe. And then this is how it ends. Maybe it would have been easier had I not had to be friends with him. You know, maybe that was, it could have been a bit of an unfair request of me, especially a young second lieutenant. But it, you know, if you're a soldier, you get, you execute. You execute the mission. You do what you're supposed to do. You know, I still have nightmares. About what in particular? The, the execution. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit there. Who's looking at me? Who's looking at me? Looking at looking for me to to do something. He's not saying anything. He's just looking at me to do something. You know, but yeah, I have. I, I mean, I I did what I was supposed to do. You know, I kept him safe and protected. Do you think if you had been assigned to a combat role, and then you turn on the TV from either Baghdad or? Kansas City and you saw Saddam Hussein a guy you'd never met a guy you weren't in charge of guarding for a year frog marched to the gallows and then hanged that you might have let out a cheer and said you know good riddance you son of a bitch I mean you deserved it yes absolutely 100% this mission had everything to do with how I reacted to that if I was just a somebody just an infantryman or anybody else who had been shot at and, you know, been through some serious, you know, Fallujah-type engagements, yeah, yeah, probably would have cheered that on. Good, we got the son of a bitch. He's got what he's coming to him, you know? But that wasn't my mission. I told my dad, he was the first person I told when I got back. And I told him probably within, like I think on the ride home from the airport, I told him what, what I was doing. Because he could, he was in the military. So, you know, he'd be able to process that. And I mean, he was proud of me and he was surprised. But, you know, he was, he was proud of me. And he completely understands my point of view. This is from somebody who fought him, you know, fought against him in the Gulf War. He understands that, you know, what I was charged to do, what my mission was. He understood that the relationship, because there's, I don't like telling people that a relationship was formed. I don't, I don't like that feeling because there's, I feel guilty for that. You know, I'm, but it would have been impossible to do that to not for that not to happen based on what I was told to do but at the same time I mean I, I, I don't I'm not proud of it I wish I could have just been cold I'm, I'm not like that though I'm not built that way but I, I understand why I mean people cheered not just Americans but especially Iraqis mm -hmm. I understand I mean, those people suffered under his, under his rule. So, I get it. I'm not judging anybody. 
if you were given the chance to do all of this again, would you accept the yes. mission? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would I you mean, it hasn't. On? Oh, yes. Longer till the end? Yes. I would have stayed to the end. That's the one thing I wish I would have redone. I would have stayed to the end. I became an aide after that, after that mission. I got home, general's aide. And then um, I became a company commander. And I got a letter in the mail one time. And not it wasn't long after that, actually. It was very, like, within a few months. It was one of those big jumbo mm-hmm. cards, you know. Well, it wasn't big jumbo card, but it was pretty big. And, you know, it said our condolences, you know. And it had a picture of him. Who sent this to you? I don't know. I don't know. Probably one of the soldiers in the in the unit that just didn't like me. So kind of a joke thought it was funny I guess it is I mean it's brutal man it can be brutal sometimes you know so who knows I don't know who sent it they knew which unit I was in so they were able to send it there so but it was hard it was very hard to to uh, you know sit through that and not be able to tell anybody what had happened so It's almost like it, it it didn't happen, you know. When I saw him watching to the gallows, he didn't look like somebody who was scared. It looked like somebody who was not scared to die, who was ready ready to face his his maker, and what other judgment is going to follow, you know. He wasn't worried about it. I remember he just kind of cussing and telling everybody off, and we went out swinging. And, and it is as upsetting as it was to watch. I just kind of thought to myself, huh, oh, good for him. He would say, you know, if you ever, when this is all over, then you come back to Iraq, you come back, and I will, I'll, I'll adorn you with, with, with roses and that way no one no one can hurt you so he thought he would be ruling the country again someday i think so yeah 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 i don't know if i'd take him up on that i don't i don't know i i I can't honestly answer that was i that sure about it i don't know (laughs) i don't know if i was a gambling man i don't know (laughs) This story is part of Paperless, an audio magazine from Vespucci.